From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. Born with all sorts of advantages, with education, of a loving family, of all sorts of support. And I had thrown all that away, betrayed all of that. If I could have foreseen this and known that this was what the situation I was going to find myself in, never would I have done it. How any Irish Republican or anyone that calls themselves a staunch Irish Republican could sit down and look at that humongous load of rubbish is beyond me. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, how one woman became a homeless homeowner, the appalling vista of Irish Republicans watching Harry and Meghan, and the legend that is Lenny Henry rises to the surface. That's all on the way over the next hour of the Radio Catch-Up show that's definitely, absolutely not watching anything remotely related to British royalty. Honest. The musings on the news, or newsings if you will, I'll make it happen. On this morning's Ryan Tuberty show, started with some exciting law enforcement updates. They've arrested FTX crypto guy, you know, the guy with the shaggy hair and the shorts, who goes to, to meetings with all the great and the good, uh, but uh, being funky and alternative and now in jail. Well, not quite in jail, but certainly arrested uh, for, for being funky and alternative. No, but he was, uh, he's, he's, he's intriguing. You do listen to a podcast about him, read up on him. He's he's, he's fascinating uh, character. And uh, he's uh, he's in a lot of bother, obviously, because of um, money issues. But the piece today I'm reading refers to the celebrities who endorsed his platform, including Tom Brady, who's a big star in American in um, sport, and uh, Larry David, who I'm a big fan of from Curb Your Enthusiasm. Uh, they all did ads endorsing the cryptocurrency exchange and expressing their faith in Sam Bankman-Fried, SBF. And uh, But they have not released any statements since the former billionaire, age 30, was detained in the Bahamas, where he has been hiding since his $32 billion empire came crashing down last month. And he's now facing criminal charges in the United States. And that story uh, continues apace. $32 billion. There is, as my grandmother was wont to say, a deal of spending in that. From SBF in the Caribbean to Hawaii. The last Hawaiian princess has died at the age of 96. Why am I telling you about her? Well, for starters, if I could even begin to pronounce her name correctly, I'd be doing well. Abidale Kinoiki Kekaliki Kawananakoa. And I'll say that um, again for you after the show ends. But in the meantime, let's call her Abigail, uh, if you don't mind. Uh, so to save my blushes, not to offend her and her beautiful name. She died uh, at the age of 96 next to her 69-year-old wife. And she was remembered for her dedication and generosity to the islands of Hawaii, as well as her immense wealth to the tune of $215 million, which came from the sugar plantation business generations earlier and her successful passion for breeding racehorses. So she held no formal title, but was a living symbol of the Hawaiian monarchy before the kingdom was overthrown by American businessmen in 1893. So why am I talking about her? Her late, sorry, her great-grandfather was James Campbell, an Irish businessman and one of Hawaii's largest landowners that struck rich in the sugarcane industry, married uh, this uh, Abigail person and their daughter then married another prince and on it went. Uh, but it all goes back to James Campbell, an Irish businessman, Back in the day, the reach of the Irish, rightly or wrongly, around the world, uh, had it all the way to Hawaii, a place I've never been to in my life. It's not even on my bucket list. 
And yet, when I see it, it always looks very beautiful. I could tell you very little, if anything, about Hawaii. Memo to self, strike tubs off all-star table quiz team contenders. And naturally, the next stop on our newsings journey is... Dua Lipa, on the other hand, uh, is in the papers today because this rapper, uh, Jack Harlow, wrote a song about her. He was so into her, called, you know, you've guessed it, Dua Lipa. Turns out, anyway, he called her in, in, in advance to say, I'm going to write the song. Do you mind? She said, no, it's OK. I don't mind too much. And then they, uh, they, they met and they apparently have kind of hit it off and maybe even a little more than hit it off, according to, if you believe it, uh, the papers this morning, in, in America at least. He flew to New York to meet up with her after her um, appearance on Friday at, at a ball. And, you know, this, is, this could be the way to a woman's heart uh, or a man's heart, depending on who's singing the song. Do you want to hear a bit of his song to Dua Lipa? Of course you do. I'll give you a little taste of this Jack Har- Harlow. Rapping about his love to Jua. She's a European and she know I'm seeing extra. Got a main character, but you could be an extra. Yes, sir. Need something, I hit my connects up. I get like three something every time I dress up. I told Jesus that I got a confession. We about to be something, they gon' have to catch up. So what's up? Do a leap I'm trying to do more with her than do Yeah, yeah. All right. Okay. Well, if that's going to do it, that's going to do it. And um, happy days. Happy Christmas to them both. The happy couple. They'll be only delighted at the seasonal felicitations, I have no doubt. But, unfortunately, there are some sad newsings to share as well. Angelo Badalamenti, the composer best known for creating otherworldly scores for many David Lynch productions, has died also at the age of 85. He would have been involved in Blue Velvet and Twin Pinks of Mulholland Drive and Wild at Heart. But this, gosh, when I heard a little bit of this this morning, it brought me right back to another time when I was very young, from Twin Peaks. I'll take you back to a time long, long ago. Anyway, that's from Twin Peaks, which was a very peculiar TV show, that I, about 8% of which I understood, and I think that was probably the point. Definitely could have had more of the Twin Peaks theme there, I feel, but what do I know? And that's the newsings. Short and kind of sweet, I guess, from this morning's Ryan Tuberty show. Onward. Today with Claire Burns started off this morning with a report from Brian O'Connell on this standoff between the HSE and drug maker Vertex over the cystic fibrosis drug Caftrio and 35 children with cystic fibrosis who were excluded from a deal struck five years ago for access to the life-changing treatment. Well, I've been in contact with both sides, Vertex and the HSE, on this issue and the HSE has now told me they expect that Vertex will be submitting what's called a HTA dossier on CAFTRIO for this cohort of children. Now, this is very significant because this HTA, which is a health technology assessment, this would be essential in any decision about whether a drug is good value for money and whether it can be approved. So the dossier from Vertex, it's a key part of that if CAFTRIO were to be approved for this 6 to 11 year old old cohort of children. So the HSE is expecting this dossier. It has asked the National Centre for Pharmaeconomics to do a priority assessment as soon as it comes in. But as we'll find out now, there have already been months of delay in this whole story. Okay. now you have had an insight into the standoff which has been going on for months, the standoff between the HSE and Vertex. And you found all of this out through freedom of information. Yes, I had sought correspondence between former HSE CEO Paul Reid 
and Vertex. So this concerns the period July to September. What it shows really is how far apart both the HSE and Vertex were, but also how the HSE were clear in their view that the deal done in 2017 included this cohort of 35 children. The company is equally clear that it doesn't. So just to take you through some of it, the company were writing to the HSE CEO, Paul Reid, in early July, and they were saying they were disappointed that they hadn't been able to reach an agreement with the HSE. So what Vertex were proposing in July was an interim access agreement for the 35 children. So what this would be in place essentially while the overall agreement was being revised to essentially future-proof it for patients that would now be included. Vertex were saying that when the deal was done five years earlier in 2017, it included a list of people who were covered, but it did not include the 35 patients with the particular genotype because, as they say, it wasn't known that the medicine would benefit those patients at that time. So that's the 7th of July and then just a week later, the company is again writing to the HSE. Exactly. They follow up a week later to see if there's any response to their proposal and they remind the HSE that the pricing aspect of all of this is confidential. So we don't know how much the original agreement was for and we don't know how much it would have costed to add the 35 patients. The HSE acknowledges the letter and then on the 25th of July, the CEO, Paul Reed sends a lengthy reply. Now, I'll paraphrase some of it for you because he outlines how the HSE has to curb assess any new medicine in terms of the funding available. He says the HSE rejects this interim proposal that the company had put forward. He says it's the company who created this divide in patient groups essentially. So what this means is that the HSE needs to formally assess the medicine now because it's been asked for more money. He says he's disappointed that Vertex is now seeking extra money. He says it does say in the contract that there was a clear financial expectation on behalf of the HSE that the very substantial substantial payments to Vertex arising from this 2017 deal. They believe this would cover the totality of spend on the Vertex portfolio right up until 2026. Now, the the figures, the actual figures are redacted in the correspondence I've seen. But Paul Reid does talk about hundreds of millions of euro already committed as part of this 2017 agreement. Paul Reid says the company should immediately give this medicine to the patients, the 35 children. And if it won't, then it'll have to go through a HTA process. We'll come back to what that means in a moment. So did the company then reply to Paul Reid's letter? Yes, and bearing in mind the company initially wrote in, in July, we're now up to September. And when they reply, they again state they're willing to allow these 35 children into the agreement, which would be an interim deal. This would be at the same cost per patient as was done with the original agreement. They say they're concerned that this HTA process would delay access to the drug and they state they're not preparing for a HTA process at that time. So that's September. And then they suggest that they should continue talking. So people listening to this, in particular families and patients who are impacted by this, might be surprised to hear that the company was offering the HSE interim access to the drug for these 35 children. I think that will surprise some people, but I think from the HSE's point of view, they felt the patient group were already included in the 2017 deal. You can see how they were in something of a bind. It would be very hard to allow access in the interim without long-term certainty. Now, yesterday I spoke to Philip Watt, who's CEO of Cystic Fibrosis Ireland. This was his response to reading the correspondence. Really disconcerting, really, Brian, to be honest. Um, You know, it just confirms that um, there's been a standoff between the HSE and Vertex on this issue and more heat than light really is the word I would use. Um, really, there has to be a better way of doing things, not just for our parents and their families, 
But for other patients who are waiting for drugs for a rare disease as well. Reading the correspondence, it's very striking how far apart both the HSE and Vertex are. I mean, they're poles apart in terms of their respective interpretation of the deal that was done. Massively so. And in fact, we asked for um, somebody independent to go in and review it. And I, sadly, that's not being taken up. It was and is uh, a difference of opinion around the particular deal. Did it surprise you when looking at the correspondence? Because it, it, it surprised me a little bit to see that Vertex were offering interim access to this cohort. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, we would strongly urge that the drug is provided on an interim basis. But it's my understanding is that there was concern on behalf of the HSE that it's a hostage to fortune. So they felt that the drug was provided in the interim, you know, it would be impossible to take the drug off patients again. So that would weaken their bargaining position. Mention as well of a figure, hundreds of millions of euro. Um, you know, there's a lot of kind of necessary noise going on around how expensive um, drugs are. Uh, these type of drugs are very expensive. But on the other side of things, they are adding years, in fact, decades on the lives of people who are taking them. Very difficult situation. And one of the issues that comes up in this correspondence is this HTA. Now, Brian, will you explain what that is and why it's so relevant now? Well, a HTA, a health technology assessment, it's an independent process that would examine a new treatment. So it looks at things like clinical effectiveness. It looks at safety, cost effectiveness. It looks at the budget impact as well as ethical and legal issues. And all of this is presented in a neutral way, so it doesn't take any sides so as you said earlier, the HSE now expects Vertex to send a dossier for this. Is Vertex on the same page? The HSE confirmed to me last night following recent engagements, they expect Vertex, as you said, to submit a HTA dossier to the National Centre for Pharmacoeconomics. This would cover CAFTRIO for the cohort of children, 35 children as we know, aged 6 to 11 years of age. They're not currently receiving uh, this access. So the HSE has then asked the NCP to undertake a priority assessment once this dossier is submitted. So they want to bring the case in front of the HSE decision makers as soon as possible. I got in touch with Vertex last night. They confirmed to me that they are in the process now of submitting this HTA. They're going to do all they can to expedite this process. They say gaining sustainable, timely access to CAFTRIO for the 35 children remains their highest priority. Um, there is some hope, I know, Claire, from those I spoke to that perhaps this could be completed as early as the end of January. This is what Philip Watt had to say on the chances that this HTA process could now finally unlock this deadlock. There is an agreed understanding now between Vertex and the HSC that it's now useful to go to a health technology assessment. Our worry is that that can take up to 90 days and can significantly delay the drug. So we will only accept this if the drug is fast-tracked through that process. And this comes through in the correspondence as well, Philip, whereby the HSE had floated this idea and it would appear from the correspondence that I've got, certainly, that the company were a little bit reluctant. I think something has changed. We don't know, you know, we don't know what, um, but I think there was a number of meetings between the two sides to explore what their differences were. And I think this decision came out of those meetings. So I think the fact that this is the first bit of agreement between Vertex and HSE, albeit it's just a path at the minute and we haven't got a result, 
but at least that is indicative that we may be heading to a solution here. It's it's absolutely groundbreaking um, medicines that the, these children are waiting for. They're the only people in Ireland with cystic fibrosis who don't get access to these drugs. It needs to be sorted now. That's Philip Watt, CEO of Cystic Fibrosis Ireland, ending Brian O'Connell's report on the standoff between the HSE and drug manufacturer Vertex. On today with Claire Byrne. Look who was on the Ray Darcy show this afternoon. It's only Lenny Henry. You're nearly 50 years in the business. That's right, yes. I can only apologise. <laughs> Surely we've had enough of this guy. What's wonderful is that, um, you know, you work hard and people kind of go, he's grafting, Let him, let's have him for a bit longer. It's nice. It's nice to be appreciated, you know. But I've read the book, right, Rising to the Surface, which is the second of, I think, it's going to be a trilogy because it stops at the year 2000. Yeah, this book stops in 2000. Yes, yeah. And I don't know how long. It depends, really. There's going to be other books um, because Faber have got an interest in stuff that I have to say, thank goodness. Mm. So there'll be another one like this and maybe there'll be something that takes a sideways look at something. I, I don't intend to stop writing just because I've got to... The present day. Let's let's go right in, right? Dive in. Go ahead. Right. Okay. Go ahead, Ray. Because you go first. <laughs> yeah. Wear them tight pants <laughs> for, before for, you die. From reading the book. Budget smugglers. <laughs> Do you want to prove to yourself? Is it are you proving it to yourself or to other people? Because you're you're like a workaholic. Oh well, yeah. hang on a second. I think that... That, that um, word comes up in, a number of times in the book. Yes, it does. But yes. Bootsy Collins calls himself a funketeer because he loves to funk, right? Right. And I'm calling myself a worketeer because I really like to work. And the problem with people who call you a workaholic is they don't quite get it. When you're in show business, work is like fun. Work is like play. Mm. So when we go to work, it's like you're playing every single day, which is why people go a bit nuts in show business. Because a day, if you've seen your kids when they play all the time, they go a bit <laughs> nuts at the end. You know, it's like they've had too much sugar. Could you calm down? So um, that's our problem. We like to play every day and um, it can it can lead to interesting places, that. Um, but for me, work has always been a pleasure. It's always been, even when I wasn't very good, I loved being on stage mm. because I loved the relationship with the audience and I could always talk to the audience. If the act was going wrong, as it did many times, I could always break away from the act, which was the act of a 17-year-old boy trying to find jokes from the Beano. I could always break off and talk to people in the audience about their hair or their clothes or their shoes. And that was always the funniest bit in the show. Yes. For some reason. Because John Kasner, is it? John Cantor. Cantor. John Cantor, who wrote with you. Uh, and he, there's bits from him in the book. And he says that exactly. He says that those bits where you interacted with the audience, were his favourite bits. Well, the thing is, he's being a bit disingenuous there. Is he? <laughs> we worked very hard on the material and his stint on my shows was very, very good. We did very, very well. We went all over the world. Um, the show went down very, very well wherever we went. And... Um, what you're talking about is new material versus stuff you just do. Mm. So there's a there's a there's a core of the new show, whatever you want to call it, like the Ireland the Ireland show. So there's the Ireland show, and then there's 30 years of stuff you've been doing since you were 16 that's still lurking around the perimeter of the, the act going, can I have a go here? <laughs> so if you see a guy with a ripped jacket or a girl with spiky hair or a man with far too big shoes or a man with an enormous belt or a guy with tattoos all over his face, I've got a joke for that. Yes. So, you know, it seems crazy 
when you're talking to the audience not to do some of those jokes mm. and you know they work mm. so um, we wrote lots of new sets because when you're in show business and you're a comedian what happens is it's not like being Bono if you sing New Year's Day again nobody's going to go oh not New Year's Day again <laughs> but if you're a comedian and you tell that joke about your mum burning the chicken on Christmas Day everybody goes we've heard uh, it before Lenny <laughs> so um, it's a constant thing of reinvention which is kind of why it's tough I think I don't do it as much. I still like being funny. Yeah. But I don't the the thing the rigor and the military, the almost military discipline of getting a new act together and going on the road for fifty dates or it's always longer now. Comedians go on the road for like a hundred dates. Peter Kay's tour is gonna to be like five months with a month with a night every month at the O2. It's I just grueling. <laughs> grueling. Yeah. I'd rather be at home watching strictly. The things that struck me from the book uh, which I want to talk to you about, if you don't mind. Uh, for, true identity, we'll talk about that, uh, the movie. Um, and your mum, Winifred. Like, she shines through the She's book. She's great. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could probably tell, when I'm writing about my mum, it's sort of easier because I've always written about my mum. My mum was the kind of North Star for me. She was, when she died, it was like somebody had yanked a big cosmic carpet from beneath my feet. And um, it was like falling for a very long time. I had, to do, I had a lot of counselling to deal with it, but it was pretty tough. And um, because my mum was really funny, so I just, I didn't, have, I didn't have to write material. I could just talk about what my mum was like. She said, surfer ticket instead of certificate. Go and get my bird surfer ticket. <laughs> what? My bird surfer ticket. You mean certificate? That's what I said. No, it isn't. You said surfer ticket. She said, Flim instead of film. Yeah. And I know that's an Irish thing too. But she said, Flim. I love that John Wayne Flim. <laughs> what? The John Wayne Flim, the searchers. You mean a film? I said Flim. <laughs> <laughs> The lovely story in the book about her 70th birthday. Oh, so she, she was great. My mum got us all together, the seven of us, and she said, I want a birthday party, a surprise birthday party. <laughs> I said, what? You want a surprise? <laughs> yes, I want a surprise. With cake and with food and with everybody, I want it to be at Dudley Town Hall. I want it to be a choir and music and speeches. Yes, a surprise birthday party. Yes. Okay. So we went away, we went, we're organising, we're organising it. The best thing was, um, when she walked in on her 70th birthday to Dudley Town Hall, and she was given the flowers by Seymour, and she was shown the room with the choir and everybody there and the microphone for the speeches, she went, all this for me? <laughs> like it was a big surprise. Yeah. You told us to do this. Yeah. This was your idea. I can't believe you do all this for me. <laughs> So funny. She was really brilliant. You, you you write very sort of not not dismissively. It's sort of like by the way about the fact that she hits you with the buckle of a belt and mm. in the face with the pot. Well, that's pretty much in the first book. I talk about yes, that in the first yeah. book, uh, and I talk about this idea. People don't like me talking about it. You know, uh, I had a black journalist haul me over the coals because he said it was reinforcing stereotypes about third world. Um, childhood discipline mm. and the only thing I could say to him was I can I have to wave my flag from where I stand and this is my truth this is my lived experience so you know um, Billy Connolly talks about being a welder and he talks about all the things about his childhood and Steve Martin talks about his parents and Richard Pryor talks about being brought up in a, in a brothel when he was a kid and this is my truth yeah my truth is that my for whatever reasons my mum hit me because she wanted to discipline me and make sure I understood that if I did anything wrong in the outside world, it would be worse than this. So she 
And it's not, you know, <laughs> the funny thing was when she was on her deathbed, I was talking to her about these things. And one of the questions was, Mom, why did you used to beat me so much? And she said this, I never beat you that much. This is a woman who threw a pot at me from across the room. You know, this woman hit me a lot. If I'd be, if Childline had been around in those days, I would have had my own parking space. My mum was extraordinary, but I did admire her for raising all those kids, for all the hard work she did, five jobs. You know, I did admire her, but I had a problem with her for a while. I mean, yeah, I did yeah. have to. And you know, now they're all talking about childhood trauma. Yeah. Like, as you describe it in this book, as I haven't read the last one, um, it, it, it does sound traumatic. I think it was. But the thing is, Charlie Chaplin used to say that um, comedy is tragedy plus time. Mm. So actually, you're allowed to examine your life and look back at it and go, oh, that bit, that bit's interesting. I'm going to talk about that bit. And because being a comedian is my job, the way I will examine that bit is through jokes. Yeah. British comedy legend Lenny Henry talking to Ray Darcy this afternoon about his memoir, Rising to the Surface. The award-winning Canadian crime writer Louise Penny joined Ryan Tuberty for a chat this morning and they started by talking about the fact that Louise began her career as a broadcaster on Canadian radio. I actually wanted to be a writer um, since I was a child, since I first started reading and I understood how powerful stories could be. Um, but I, I came out of the womb for some reason, and I was never given a re- you know I was never given reason to be afraid, but I was afraid of everything. And one of the main things I was afraid of was the judgment of others. And so I did not attempt to do the one thing I think I was put on earth to do, and that's right. So I took the ancillary close enough, but not quite the same thing, and that is being a journalist um, on radio, as we're doing right now, sure. um, where the stories are are very. Um, tight, very focused, but also very short. They're essentially over in, you know, a few minutes or a couple of paragraphs. Um, so, yeah, I, I became a journalist. The, the great thing is, as you know, and you're clearly a, a genius at this, is the journalists, especially if they're on air, are, are really good listeners. And that has served me well, I, I hope, as a writer, yeah. the best writer, I think, in the in the room generally is not the loudest person. It's the person sitting quietly in the corner, taking it all in, taking it all in with the view to seeing material everywhere you look. Well, that's it. They're either a writer or a sociopath. So, <laughs> so often, <laughs> that's for really sure. hard to tell the difference. I, I'm, I'm intrigued <laughs> by what you're saying there, Louise, about coming out of the womb afraid and being a fearful child, uh, despite having a happy. Uh, upbringing, like it wasn't that you were, you know, terrified of of some sort of uh, family secret or what have you. So, uh, how did you n- uh, navigate that, and how did you ultimately conquer it? Well, my initially, what I did when I got into my teens, late teens, was I started drinking mm. quite heavily. It, it did at least allow me to get out into the world, and then, of course, as these things do, eventually, it, it turned on me. Um, um, and, and, and finally, that was really what 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 what, what broke open my whole life and, and shattered all those insecurities was that I reached a fork in the road where I either was going to kill myself or 
get better. Something had to change. I was 35, not even halfway through my life. Um, I used to look at elderly people and wonder how they did it. How do you get gray in your hair and, and, and still be alive and, and, and be happy? Um, so fortunately, I've realized if I was willing to kill myself, maybe I should be willing to try to get help first. What did alcohol do for you as a plus? And I say that with a qualified plus in the initial years, I suppose. What, what was it doing to, to help you? Well, it, 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 I, I just so deeply insecure and, and, and it helped numb those feelings. Um, so I would, I would go to work and then come home and, and drink myself and drink all the insecurities and all the wounds, real or imagined or manufactured, um, away. Um, and until I got to the stage where I just, I, 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 I didn't know how to deal with with real life, but it it allowed me to get out the door to begin with. Um, And then, as these things do, it became a prison. And it came to, you're talking to a language that a lot of our listeners are familiar with, not through their own personal experience necessarily, but certainly within families uh, around the place, especially Mm -hmm. at this time of year, of course, magnifies everything, as you know, for better or for worse. But you you, you got to a point clearly when you were about 35, as you've just described, and you said, right, well, it's either the booze or me. One of us has to win here. And you took that that head on. Um, Did somebody say something to you? to push you over the line to tackle this or was it a process or was it a personal moment? No, it was, it's a really interesting question. No one said anything to me because I was, I mean, drinkers come in all sorts of, you know, different um, sizes and shapes mm. and I was an, a, an isolated drinker. So nobody, nobody knew that I was drinking at all. I was so deeply ashamed of it and ashamed of myself. So I would, I would, I would be the designated driver, in fact, I would have at parties, um, but I would, so I wouldn't drink at all. And then when I got home, I would, I would do a lot of drinking. Um, so yeah, nobody, nobody knew that this was happening. So it was something, it was a private moment. One of those, after joining a 12-step program, I, I, you, you listen to a lot of people's experiences, many of which are just like, just. Uh, 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 so shattering, uh, just a terrible, terrible experiences they had that brought them to their knees, uh, but brought them to their bottom. For me, mine was just so prosaic. I, I just, I remember just to this day as though it's happening now, standing in my bedroom, frozen, paralyzed. I, 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 I couldn't move forward. I couldn't move backward. I couldn't look in the mirror anymore because I had I had betrayed all the advantages I had been given, you know, as a, as a as a you know born in Canada, born with all sorts of uh, advantages, with of education, of a loving family, of all sorts of support, and I had thrown all that away, betrayed all of that. I couldn't look at pictures of me as a child anymore out of shame, um, and I certainly couldn't imagine moving forward into life, and so it was just one of those very quiet moments where I realized, yeah, I'm I'm either going to die or I'm going to live, but something has to change. Something has to happen. Your head was, you know, a a, a carnival of treachery, wasn't it? I mean, you had, you felt treacherous to your family, to your, to your country, to yourself. What a, what a complicated place to be. Yeah. And what a wonderful way to put it. That's, that's exactly, that's exactly what it felt like. And to be, 
living with with my own enemy um, and, and and able to get away from it because it is me. Um, so yes, um, it, 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 I, I'm just so grateful that I actually reached out for help and went. And, and, and I'm a huge advocate of gun control. Always was. Mm. Always would be. Um, it's not unusual in Canada to find people who are advocates of gun control. But I know that if there had been a gun in the house at that moment, I may very well have done it. And I think of all the people who who could be alive today if there hadn't been a gun in the house. Um, I, I finished book 14 in the series at the weekend, Kingdom of the Blind. And I was a late comer, so that's why I'm, I'm, I've got the kind of evangelical uh, zealotry <laughs> of the of the newly converted, if you like. And... Um, there's just this this lovely uh, uh, trope, if that's the right word, uh, in it, where there's you, if you're if you're panicking or if you're in a dark place, you just list the things that make you happy, and it could be a croissant mm. crumbling with under the weight of freshly <laughs> piece of butter on it, or you know, or it could be a you know the, the 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 smell of you know your child's hair after a bath or whatever it might be, um, and equally with 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 you. Uh, and your husband Michael, tell me, tell me three or four things about him that come to mind immediately when you think about those early years together. Oh, oh, well, I mean, I, I think of his kindness, of his, of his generosity, of his courage. All, all you know, in fact, you know, qualities that that have have informed my life going forward but there's nothing there's no feeling on earth I, I that I've experienced like going from despair to hope and then finding love of going from me to we from I to us that sense of not being alone you know I've, I have many many friends um and and, and have had since getting sober um but there's nothing quite like having that I don't want to say the other half because I was whole anyway and I was happy anyway but being with Michael made me happier and it made me braver and it made me better um, and it, it was just the most incredible experience I remember driving shortly after our first date and I fell in love with him right away like right it was a in Quebec we call it a coup de foudre mm. which is a, a, a love at first sight mm-hmm. took him a little longer I kept asking are you not in love with me yet <laughs> which apparently is not a lovely thing to say, but yeah. <laughs> I kept saying it. Um, but I was driving along, going to a, another friend's house, and the car broke down. Of course it broke down, and I didn't care. I didn't care. Nothing could hurt me because I was in love. The really quite upbeat crime writer Louise Penny talking to Ryan Tuberty this morning. Jeanette Brown rented out her apartment when she went abroad to work in 2017. She returned to Ireland this year but has been so far unable to find suitable accommodation. Claire Byrne spoke to her this morning and asked if she might be termed a homeless homeowner. That is a description that unfortunately I have to give myself at the moment and not to be dramatic about it but that is the situation that I found myself in now since coming home. Mm -hmm. How did you end up in a situation where you own a property but you're currently homeless? How did that happen? Um, the year that I decided to go away, I was actually headhunted to go. It wasn't something that would have been the forefront of my mind before. So I was a little bit torn about the decision because my home was my pride and joy, is my pride and joy. And it's 
you know, as a young girl and, and working in the city and stuff, you really just enjoy your, your downtime in your home. So it, it has that emotional attachment to me. Um, but obviously financially, it would have been difficult to do both, leave it vacant and go. Um, in hindsight, probably would have been the best thing if I could have afforded it. Um, but I mean, I did what I thought was best. And, you know, you hear all the time that the government need people to rent their homes out. And that was what I did, thinking it would have helped somebody else. Um, I went and um, things didn't work out as planned, I guess. I did always think that I would come back within a year a uh, year and a half and I would have come back sooner if my if my contract had allowed me I just wasn't particularly loving life out there um but I did so I made the decision to come back in the year I submitted my notice of termination uh through the guidelines that were set out online and stuff um so I did everything that I thought I, I should have done um and when I came back then August 2022 I found myself in a situation with very limited options of of where to go and and, um, you know, I, I've, I've been in, in different people's homes since then so and find myself just. So just to be clear, you, you came home having worked abroad and you obviously wanted to move back into your apartment, which you had rented yeah. out. And you're not taking issue. And we should be clear about this. You're not taking issue with the tenants. You've no problem no. with them. They have their own circumstances. Yeah, but you've absolutely not. Yeah, you've questions for the government, though, Jeanette, don't you? And the Minister for Housing. Yeah, I mean, the regulations that were put in place around the time I actually submitted my notice changed everything to do with landlord and tenancy laws. Um, uh, what I will say is that I did everything that I thought was set out for me to do. I got a, a commissioner of votes to sign a declaration from the country I was in um, because how else would I have done it? I couldn't come home to do it. And I did it all pre me leaving Dubai. So it was all set up because tenants are, are entitled to a very long notice period now, which is absolutely fine. I wanted to do everything by the book. And I, that would be quite in my nature to do everything by law. And I wouldn't want to do anything wrong or make anyone, uh, put anyone in a situation that, you know, they don't want to find themselves in. That's not what I was trying to do. Um, but, you know, the the government agencies that are, are on decide to provide assistance to tenants and um, took four months to let me know that the notice was invalid and that was four months of time that I spent thinking that I'd get back into my property and then in October the the ban came into play so there was two things that came at me like a ton of bricks without me even realizing there was an issue and the ban now for me is look I can come to terms with the fact that I've resubmitted a notice under legal guidance and I've had um I've consulted professionals and I've done all the things now that I believe is making the notice valid without still even knowing if it is valid I've had to go and ask the PRTB to to validate it for me and they have yet to come back um so I'm willing and I can accept that I'm in the position that I'm in now. Like, I mean, it's not a great position to be in, obviously not. But I, if I, I can come to terms with it, if I knew that they weren't going to extend this ban again in the new year. Mm -hmm. If other, if the opposition had to be believed and people that I've chatted to along the way, it is definitely a, a concern and it could happen. So my question to the minister at this point is, if he does extend that ban, 
is he going to amend the legislation to allow people like me to go back into their homes? Because I'm not a multi-property landlord. Well, Jeanette, we, we got on to the Department of Housing and we asked them that question and they told us in a statement that the provisions of the eviction ban legislation will end on the 31st of March 2023. And I'll bring you more of that statement uh, in a little while. But I just want to go through where you're at now because you have a job, an income, and yeah. you've got rental income as well, but there's nowhere you can yeah. find to rent. Is that what's happening? Well, I came home to a job expecting this to be seamless enough and to be able to do it in my spare time and have time to do it and all the rest of it. It has been so difficult. There is like, I mean, the instability of not having your own home in the first place is difficult enough and managing yourself between homes, not having like expenses come with being a landlord. You don't just get the rent money and run away into the sunset. You have to you have to keep your money for your tax. You have to pay your bills. You have to pay your mortgage to keep money for maintenance. I wasn't in that for profit. I want that to be really clear. It wasn't a profitable decision for me. So this at the end of the day is something that I found myself involved in and I would definitely declare myself an accidental landlord. And what I'd also say is that you'd nearly need to really study property law and um, law to understand what you're getting yourself into because if I could have foreseen this, and knowing that this was what the situation I was going to find myself in, never would I have done it. Mm-hmm. Well, this ever, is one. Ever. That's one side of it. But the other side of it is you you can't find somewhere to rent, despite the fact that you have a job and you probably have a little bit of uh, rental yeah. income as well. There's just nothing out yeah. there. Is that what's happening? It's very very difficult. You don't get called back. Uh, you don't generally um, get a look in, and that's when you do get to the point of actually going to see somewhere. It's very very limited, and this is why I completely empathise and sympathise with anyone else in a scenario where they're in. In my situation, I think it's this is a massive massive social issue, and it's something that I think is bigger than we even are led to believe. And I don't think the government's solution and their futile attempt at creating a solution to the private property, to the, to the social housing issue is pushing the responsibility onto the private sector. It was, it's, it's, it's laughable. And I, I just think if I had a belief system in me that they were after making loads of changes between now, like it, it's two months now that this ban is in place. And I just don't, I don't have the faith that they've done anything different to make, make a difference. What's it like out there when you go to viewings? What are the queues like? Uh, like, I mean, that's when you get to one. Uh, it's very, very crowded. There's a lot of people there and the agents don't have a lot of time for everybody that's there. Um, and you just, a lot of the time, you just don't get a call back. And like I say, I am trying to keep a job down. It's it's a full-time job. Um, I'm trying my best to keep myself in check between the homes that I'm in and stuff. So it's just, I find the whole thing really distasteful considering I left my country and I went to a different country and I actually spent a year in another country where I felt a lot safer than I do in my own home, my own country. I felt a lot more well looked after and, and well considered as a, as a citizen. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, I'm just very lost. Like it's not a scenario I ever would have thought I'd find myself in. That's homeowner Jeanette Brown talking to Claire Byrne this morning about her situation where she's effectively homeless despite owning her own apartment. John in Cork told Joe Duffy on this afternoon's Liveline that he's not a fan of Netflix's Harry and Meghan series and he doesn't think that any self-respecting Republican should be watching it. 
How many Irish Republican or anyone Joe that calls himself the staunch Irish Republican could sit down and look at that humongous load of rubbish is beyond me. And how do you I know? Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. How do you know it was a humongous load of rubbish if you haven't seen it? Well, we've, there's no getting away from it. It's been discussed in every talk show and 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 and, and the planet. It's all, it's in the south and the centres. You go into the shop. It's in the front of the papers. It's on the TV, Sky News. I mean, you know, RT. I mean, I have referred to it from time to time. And look, it's just boring. Nobody wants to know about it. I actually felt sorry for the two lads. Obviously, what happened to their mother. It was a horrendous thing to happen mm. to two young lads being left like that and their mother killed in such tragic circumstances, right? And then the paparazzi and all the fallout from that. But what's happening now, and this whole idea to, with Harry that he wanted to take Megan away from this. I know there's uh, accusations of racism and other stuff going on. It's supposedly, right? Now, the royal family like haven't come out uh, very strong on that mm-hmm. but the thing is if you want to get away from something Joe right really want to get away from something do the desert island on it don't start coming back then yeah. and commenting and cribbing and moaning and bitching about the very thing that you want yeah, to get away from don't use that last word the, um, the, the, the Daily Mail says they've now been told to stay away from the coronation well, I wouldn't be surprised, and I think it's the right thing to do, because, I mean, let's be honest, this is like any family, you know, at, war, at this stage, you know, where if there's a wedding coming up to or something, or even, God forbid, it happens at times, which is very misfortunate, people are banned from funerals, because there's such a fallout from a family for something that happened along the line, that there's yeah, a divide in the family. Yeah, so I, I can understand, I can understand yeah. like why they won't be uh, invited to the coronation. No, like, but no. hang, hang on a minute, 1857-1585, you're saying anyone who watches this in Ireland, that if they are Republican, which most people in Ireland are, they believe mm. in the Republic, uh, by the people, for the people, etc. You're yeah. saying suddenly their Republican credentials, their, their Republican identity goes up in smoke. It does. I watched uh, the fantastic show narrated by uh, Brendan Gleeson there. Yeah. Uh, it's the second uh, lot of it last night. The, the, yeah. the third one is on tonight, the Civil War. Excellent show. Brilliant. Great production by RT. But I mean, like, after watching that, like, how anyone could actually be even interested in the slightest about the royal family, not to know Harry and, 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 and Meghan Markle, but I mean, like, anything to do with it. And you can see what's after happening lately, you know, I think the tide is turning, Joe, because uh, it never happened when Queen Elizabeth was there because there was respect for the woman. Uh, I think it's twice or three times now, uh, the Charlie yeah, and... But hang, and yeah, but hang on, hang on. Um, a lot of people... Uh, when Queen Elizabeth died and when it was her jubilee, a lot of people, including people who have the word Republican in their political party uh, subclass, so to speak, the Sinn Féin, uh, mm-hmm. Fianna Fáil, the Republican Party, they all bent over backwards to offer one congratulations on the jubilee and then, unfortunately, shortly thereafter, um, condolences on her passing. So are they not Republicans? Just playing the game, Joe, that's all. That's all they're doing, playing the game. I mean, the way I look at it, when I watch uh, the English programmes here now as well, because they show more of what's happening on the ground, obviously, we have our own news here, and it's good. But when you see the circumstances now, with the, that country is in absolute turmoil at the moment. They're on their third prime minister, right? The cost of living has gone through the roof. Like, mm. I mean, the health sector, the once lauded uh, health sector, is now in absolute crisis. There are strikes all over the place. The strike right? on today, and the railway workers on strike, yeah, the postal workers on strike, the nurses are going out. Thursday. 
Yeah. In the middle of all this, you have two individuals then, like, I mean, who are coming along mourning and cribbing and they're getting a hundred million off on Netflix, like, while people are barely struggling trying to feed themselves and heat their homes and council houses and private houses and whatever. It's an absolute affront. And do you have Netflix, John? No, I haven't, and if I had, I wouldn't even watch. I, I, I'd, I'd watch no, but do you think? But do you think a lot of people in Ireland have Netflix, and you, you pay, these, these are not cheap. Well, not. Compared no. to the licence fee, they're, they're extortionate. But anyway, that's the price yeah. people are willing to pay. Do you think anyone, Irish people who have subscriptions to Netflix, if they were true Republicans, because that's where the money is going, part of their money yeah. is going to yeah. 100 million to Harry, Harry and Meghan, do you think they should cancel their subscription? Not advocating this now, but given your, your line of thinking. Oh, yes, I think if, if you, you... You cannot call yourself a Republican if you're going to sit down and watch this kind of stuff and you should cancel your subscription if yeah, you're a true Republican and not... Or, or else, like, keep your subscription, right? And don't watch this kind of stuff, like, because I think... this. this do you vis- come- yeah, but, uh, do you visit friends' houses over Christmas? Oh, yeah, yeah. OK. Do you, have you any friends... You do... Sorry, not have you any friends. Have you any friends who you regard as Republican? Oh, yes, yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Let's say you arrive unannounced on St. Stephen's Day, or Boxing Day, as they call it, in, mm-hmm. in South Dublin. Let's say you arrived in on St. Stephen's Day, mm-hmm. and, you know, you just had your mince pies and your bottle of Baileys under your arm, and you caught one or two of your friends watching Harry and Meg. What yep. would you do? What would you do? I would berate them in a nice, polite way. I would say, what are you doing looking at this? Simple as that. And if they continue to look at us, I wouldn't insult them by walking over to their house in the day. would be friends of mine. But I would yeah. take myself into the other room, into the kitchen, whatever. I would not be in the same room as that programme. You'd go into a hof? I would, yeah. You'd go into a right royal hof? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah, but, but John, like, it's bordering on censorship what you're talking about. No, it's not. I, 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 the See, is, like, like I mean, people can watch what they want, and it doesn't doesn't take away from their politics or well, their well, identity. Is, the true censorship is something that is imposed on people, right? Yeah. But I'm asking people like to self-impose it on themselves. If you're a true Republican, don't go watching anything to do with this current co- uh, uh, cardology that's going on, or anything to do with the royal family. John from Cork on this afternoon's live line, chastising any and all Irish Republican people who decide to watch the Netflix Harry and Meghan series, or indeed anything to do with the British royal family, on this afternoon's Live Line. I wonder, is it just the British royal family, or is it, you know, any royal family? We may never know. Elena Ryan, CEO of Children's Books Ireland, and Dr Christina MacDonald, GP and founder of online bookshop Genius Juniors, joined Claire Byrne this morning to talk about the minefield that is choosing books for children for Christmas. Here's some of what they recommended, with Christina starting with the That's Not My books for very small children. They're brilliant and, you know, I suppose there's only a few pages in them but really they will use them again and again and again. It's just getting the child familiar with a book and turning the pages and then getting familiar with the textures. So the Christmas ones we have, uh, the Christmas fairy, Santa, reindeer, snowman and all of that. Then I moved on to noisy books or musical books. Again, 
very popular. Children love to hear some music. Uh, one of the best-selling ones that we have would be the Nutcracker. Probably hear it here in the background. Oh, yeah, I do hear yeah. the background, yeah. So, that, You're reminding that is, me of one that we have in our house called Noisy Bottoms. Oh, do you yes, know that one, that Elena? One. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we have that as well. Yeah, it makes an array it. of delightful noises. Yeah, they absolutely yeah. love it. One of the best books we ever bought because it makes rude noises. But anyway, go, let's go back to the nice Christmassy ones. That was the Nutcracker. Yeah, You've got a, a, a Santa sound book as well. Yeah, Winter Wonderland. Then there's Baby's very first noisy Christmas. There's Noisy Touch of Feely Santa. There's a huge selection, but I think they're really popular with children, you know, from quite a young age. And they'll even pick them up when they're three or four again. Yeah, and you can put, and put them away and bring them out again next year. And they're new again. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so, Elena, for the littlest ones, what are your favourites? So I've picked one, Oscar because we get a lot of questions from parents who maybe don't have a high level of Irish themselves, but who want to have it in the house and who want to make a point of it. And also just families who... Um, are, are sending their kids to Gaelskulna or raising their kids through Irish. So Igbozal Sigardin, Laonini Glynn, who's our current laureate Nanog, and Mr. Ando, uh, also known as Andrew Whitson. This is a really simple poem about a bee in a garden, but it's gorgeous looking. It's very chunky black outlines, really bright jewel colours. And it's very much like Lucy Cousins' Maisie series or the Mr. Men and Little Miss books that we all know very well. So um, that kind of early rhyming picture book is very much in demand as well. We get a lot of parents who are reading The Gruffalo, love the rhyme love the rhythm and just can't cope with reading it one more time so something like this is perfect for them and my next option then is Be Wild Little One by Olivia Hope and Daniel Egnes and this is a very very beautiful and very uplifting picture book again the feel of an instant classic and an endorsement from the late Shirley Hughes on the cover which feels very fitting for the kind of book it is Olivia's writing is just soaring and joyful and free and again it's a rhyming picture book with the refrain Be Wild Little One so you're getting all these landscapes of the tundra and under the sea and a giant dandelion clock and it's really Gorgeous. stunning visually. I'm interested in this one you've chosen as well, Once Upon a Fairy Tale. Yes, this one is so much fun. So do you remember Choose Your Own Adventure? Yes. Yeah, I love those. And that's this for Littlies, for three plus. So on every spread, there's an option and it's kind of who is your villain? What have they done? You know, even what is the opening line? Is it Once Upon a Rainy Tuesday? Is it Once Upon a Golden Morning? Once Upon a Fairy's Birthday? So if your kids know the You Choose series by Nick Sharrett and Pippa Goodhart, which puts the reader firmly in charge, this is fun because it's a different story all the time. Yeah, and it might take you about 45 minutes to read the bedtime story. Yeah, <laughs> it might. Maybe it's a kind of a morning story. But the O'Hara sisters, Natalia and Lauren O'Hara, are phenomenal. Uh, the, the writing is gorgeous and the artwork is just stunning. Yeah, I remember those. For the older age groups, when I was about nine or ten choosing your own ending and it's so exciting you really feel like you're in charge of, of the book and yeah happens and you are yeah absolutely and that's as it should be for young readers that mm-hmm. reading a book isn't a concrete experience where your aim is to get to the end even though sometimes it might feel like that at, at bedtime it's very much about playing with what's on the page and these are such beautiful books Lauren who who illustrates them is based here in Dublin and you can actually buy signed first editions of her books as well as prints from Tales for Tadpoles in Drury Street or Bray so a lovely kind of gifty option as well okay. and just to remind our listeners all of the uh, choices and the picks from Christine and Elaine will be on our website rte.ie forward slash today CB. So now let's move up to age four to eight, Christina. Lots of fun educational books focusing on Ireland that are the perfect gift that you've chosen. 
Yeah, I just thought we have so many great authors in Ireland and Irish published books that are just so beautiful. It would be a shame to skim over them. So some of them are they're A3 size, so they're quite large. And again, you can pop them on the kitchen table and have a few children gather around and get involved. Great Irish farm book, the Great Irish politics book, there's a history one, weather, drama, the list goes on. So I sometimes think that vouchers come in as a very good gift here in this age group as well because, you know, a child can sit down and have a look through our website, ourgeniusjuniors.ie, and they can choose their own, I suppose. Um, again, I thought another nice section on our website is inspiring people. So uh, we have fabulously feisty queens. We have her story, 50 women who shook the world, earth heroes, 20 inspiring stories, people who are saving the world. And again, it's not really nailing it down to your particular age group. This is a book that a child, if they're too young for it, when they receive it, they're going to grow into it and get years of use out of it. So mm-hmm. a reference book that they'll keep coming back to. Um, some other ones, if you know, people are looking for a specific ages, then I think the All You Need to Know by the Age of Seven series from Osborne is quite good. There's a science and a maths and an hour world one. Um, there's a look inside range as well, again, with every topic under the sun that you could possibly think of. So, you know, they're educational, but they're colourful and engaging. A lot of them have lift the flaps, so it keeps the child involved. Yeah, co- co- colourful with quick facts inside. And for that exactly. age group, um, Elena, the four to eight-year-olds, they ask a lot of questions. <laughs> this and this is why... <laughs> I love this one that you've brought in, the bedtime book of impossible questions. Yes, real life adventures and curiosity. So this is by Isabel Thomas and illustrated by Aaron Cushley. And to me, this book is absolutely mind blowing. So I would have loved it as a child. It's the kind of questions kids are always asking. The most recent one I was asked by my own kids is whether they're more pigeons or seagulls in our world. That's a great <laughs> question. Did you have the answer? No, but I googled it and it's seagulls. Um, so some Surprised, of my favorite, actually. I know, but there's so much to learn in this. Claire. This is why I love it. Things like, why can't I remember falling asleep? Why do we cry? Do animals have imaginations? Why can't I tickle myself and are cats solid or liquid? So sometimes there isn't an I want easy that book answer. for myself. I love it's this great book. book. It's so much fun and it kind of explains that if there isn't an easy answer, it might put forward a hypothesis and explain to you that that's what science is about. Mm-hmm. So just the, the whole kind of logic behind it is amazing. So who, that's suitable for what age, would you say? It's about seven plus. Um, I, I think that there's a good deal of text in it, but it's also full colour illustration. It's a hardback, gifty book that you could pass around the family if you've got a couple of kids um, but yeah I'm placing that's it around 7 plus that's, that's, I think that's my favourite from today and it's called The Bedtime Book of Impossible Questions by Isabel Thomas so- Obviously many unanswerable questions are being put in the burn household these days Some of the books for children this Christmas chosen by Elena Ryan CEO of Children's Books Ireland and Dr Christina MacDonald founder of online bookshop Genius Juniors on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shuridon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio player. And there'll be another episode of Playback Daily at the same time tomorrow. Probably. Until the next time though, for me, thank you for listening and good luck.